Amen. Amen. Please remain standing and take your Bibles and open it to Proverbs chapter 8. We certainly will continue with the series that we began a few weeks back. I want to read from verse 32 through 36, and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Now, Father, bless this word for your servant that is in great need, Lord, of, of your power. Come and make your word powerful. Come and make it effectual. Come and seal it to our minds and our hearts that it wouldn't be forgotten, but that it would be, Lord, hid away so that we might practice it every day. As we just confessed in song, we love your law and we desire to meditate on it, reflect upon it, Lord, to learn it, to know it so that we might put it into practice and bring you great glory in all we do, that we might love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 32 of Proverbs 8. Hear now the word of God. Now, therefore, O sons, listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. And all those who hate me love death. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, beloved, I chose this text of scripture as a foundation for the series because I wanted to make the connection in your mind and heart that it is good and wise to know the will of God and to put it into practice, to know what God's will is for everyday living, the things which we need to believe, when we all have to believe certain things, and the things we are required and obligated to do. Now, this certainly exists under the heading that God is the creator of all men. And by virtue of that fact, all men are obligated to obey him and serve him. And they cannot escape this obligation. And not to do so, well, will we'll bring forth a severe eternal penalty at the end if they do not repent and put their faith and trust in the blessed Messiah, Jesus Christ. That sacrifice that the Father has provided in order for men to be made right with him. Now, we as Christians, those who profess to know Christ, those who have professed Christ, those who have repented of their sins, and those who are committed to walking with Christ as Christians are under a double obligation to obey and serve him. Not only as creator, all men have that obligation, but also as redeemer. We have a dual obligation, a double obligation. We have a, 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 a double obligation, if you will, to serve and love him, not just as creator, but for his grace, for the salvation that he has given to us in Christ Jesus. 
It goes to show, beloved, that it is a dangerous thing to rebel against God. It is dangerous. It is hurtful. It's destructive to the individual. It's destructive to families. It's destructive to churches. And it's destructive to societies and social groups. This text demonstrates that. It proves this. I want to make this connection. I want you to have this connection in your mind as you talk to people, particularly related to this heinous crime of abortion. Now, why did I take the opportunity to interrupt the series on the parables to address abortion? Well, because of two things. Number one, the opportunity came up. We have an opportunity in the state of Georgia to do something about it, to remedy this evil, to sort of to wipe this stain off of our state if we're brave enough to fight against this culture of death. And that's what we've been, at least in our sermons and hopefully in our conversations, challenging our representatives, our state representatives to be bold enough and brave enough and love God enough to pass this Equal Protection Act. That's the first one, opportunity. The second one was the prevailing ignorance that blankets Many, many Christians, professing Christians, the blanket ignorance. That was, has, was never more evident than the article that I was passed uh, this week about um, condemning those that are taking this position that I've been preaching and advocating to you. Now, we knew it was going to happen. We said it was going to happen, and it didn't take long for it to happen. But there are already right-to-life groups sort of posturing themselves to, well, to condemn this activity, this movement, this surge of, of righteousness to see abortion completely abolished. Now, now, let me say, they, they claim we have the right, the same goals in mind. I'm not sure we do. I'm not sure. I, I, I want to be careful. I never want to be guilty of slander. I don't want to be guilty of, of treating my brothers and sisters unkindly. But I certainly doubt that. And I'm going to throughout the sermon this morning sort of bring things to light in the article. I, I think I'm going to produce the article, have it passed out so that you can begin to educate yourselves and to see how, how empty, how empty their apologetic is to what we're doing. It, it's, it's grandstanding. There's one comment that the article makes that I had to literally sit back in my chair and stare at the ceiling and, 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 and just really wonder if this person was in connection with reality. And that comment was this. The, the article is, is 
addressing the, the, the abortion abolitionist. That's what they're calling us. And I don't particularly like that name, but okay, so be it. And the article is addressing someone, that, I think around in the Atlanta area, I guess. I don't know this person. They mentioned him by name. I don't know him. But he wrote an article I thought was very good. I thought he hit all the right points, and I thought he did a good job explaining the issue and, and the ministry that he's connected with, I've never, I don't know anything about. But interestingly enough, the author of the article made this statement. He says that, that this person is sort of standing on this high moral ground and preaching to everyone else on morality. Now, the author of the article used that statement as a pejorative. High moral ground. I hope we have the high moral ground. Right? Don't shy away. I mean, do you not want the high moral ground in a situation like this? Or do you want the low moral ground? Which one do you want? Do you want the moral position or the immoral position? I just thought that comment alone, and, and then there are several more that are made that completely left me believing what I thought going into this series is that we have to educate ourselves in the ways of the Lord, in the law of God. We have to educate ourselves that when we abandon God, it's not good. It, serves, it doesn't serve the rebel and it doesn't serve the family of the rebel. <laughs> it doesn't serve the church when the church begins to decide for itself what it will be engaged in rather than looking to Scripture and having its marching orders and doctrines gleaned out of Scripture. And that, that's what is put into practice in the church. And it doesn't serve a society to reject and deny God. Now, evolution's had a large part in this. Evolution, the doctrine of evolution has had a large part in the church abandoning the moral standards of God, calling into question our obligations and our responsibilities. This text of Scripture clearly says that those who abandon God injure themselves, destroy themselves, and produces not only in them a culture of death. What does a culture of death look like for the individual? Depression, bitterness, anger, envy, pride, arrogance, all of those things that are destructive to the human being, to the person, man or woman, it doesn't matter. When they begin living a life of what they believe is autonomous and free, they do nothing but bring to themselves all of the sorrow and misery that comes in being a covenant breaker. 
And that's assumed in the figure of speech or in this, in this portion, death. Death is a pregnant term. It's not just the giving up of the breath. It's not just taking your last breath. It's not simply closing your eyes and and moving from this life to the next. No, it's bringing into your life all that is death. It's like God told Adam, the day you eat of this tree, you will die. And he did. He died to the things of God. He died to the commandments of God. He died to the worship of God. He died to the righteousness of God. He died to the holiness of God. He died all the way around. He died to the things, the love and the nurture and the respect he would have for his wife. Dead. Don't you see it in our culture? Don't you see it in families? Don't you see it even in churches that go astray? Don't you see it in civil relationships? It's all around us. Why? Because we've chosen to be practical atheists at best. Now I say at best because, listen, I'm dressing this to these Georgia representatives most of these representatives are going to profess to be a Christian. Yet, they will not allow their morality given to them by God Almighty found in the summary of that natural law in the Ten Commandments where they should stand up and advocate and defend and protect unborn life. And that brings us to the commandment that we're on this morning. The commandment that we are going to look at this morning, or at least begin, maybe finish, is the fifth commandment. If you will, take your Bibles and turn them over to Exodus 20. Now, how do I go from Proverbs 8 to Exodus 20? It's simple. What does Proverbs 8 verse 32 begin to advocate? Instruction. Listening to what the Father has to say. In this case, our divine Father. In any case, our heavenly Father, our earthly Father should do the same thing. Our earthly superiors ought to be doing the same thing, whether it be a pastor or even our earthly magistrates, who's a superior, ought to be doing the same things, showing us the paths of righteousness. That's their obligation and responsibility. Look with me at Exodus 20 and verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, you may think immediately, well, Jess has misread this commandment. That commandment has nothing to do with a parent. 
That commandment has nothing to do with this idea that a person may consider or participate in exterminating the life of their unborn child. Now, listen, and I'm, I, am, I am not solely blaming the woman. I think there are women that are coerced and forced into this. And we can talk about what, they, what those men deserve on a, at another time. Nothing good there either. But what I want you to know and understand is that the fifth commandment is likened unto the first commandment of the first table of the law. It sits as the head of the second table. Just like the first commandment sits at the head of the first table of the law, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and all of the subsequent commandments, two, three, and four, are all related to that commandment. They are connected. They they unfold that commandment in particular duties and obligations that we owe to God as the only true and living God. The fifth commandment sits at the head of the second table of the law, and it too provides in the sixth, seventh, and eighth, ninth, and tenth commandment the subsequent duties and obligations that Well, all relationships have to one another in particular obligations. The fifth commandment is a commandment that sets forth responsibilities and obligations in every human relationship. In every human relationship. Whether it be yourself There are certain things you owe yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've already mentioned this and I'm going to hit on it again. Because I was just dancing in the minds of great and brilliant men that expounded this idea. And Samuel Willard, who wrote back in the 17th century, has a great piece and understanding of what it means. And he called this personal integrity. A good name is better than gold and silver. A good name is better than gold and silver. How we carry ourselves as the image of God. Integrity and honor. And how that flows from us in our several relationships to others in the family. in the church, and in the state. All are connected with the fifth commandment. How does the fifth commandment set this before us? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I I think this is fine. The, The fifth commandment sets these obligations and relative duties before us in three classifications, superiors, inferiors and equals superiors inferiors and equals now you have to understand this is not going to be popular in our day and time the idea of a superior 
I mean, everybody can't be superior, <laughs> right? But we all have relationships with one another that flow from these three categories. Listen to Samuel Willard as it relates to the fifth commandment being the head commandment of the second table of the law. He says this, he says, as we formally took notice that the first commandment in the first table comprehends the ground and reason of all other precepts relating to worship, so the fifth commandment, which is the first and the second table, is the foundation of all that follows And they, these other commandments, may be reduced and inferred from the fifth commandment. That is when we, I mean, when you think about it, it's brilliant the way God designed it and and summarized it for us. How? So, So the two tables of the law are summed up and we just confessed this this morning. How are the two tables of the law summed up? Love the Lord thy God with all thy mind, soul, body, and strength. How's the second table summed up? Love thy neighbor as thyself. How do we love our neighbor? We honor them. We cherish their good name. We educate those that we are able to educate. The home is an educational institution. The church is an educational institution. And believe it or not, even the state is. In some degree and not in all in the same ways, yet has a role in this. Simply put, for the sake of time, how do we love our neighbor? Well, don't kill them unjustly. Right? How do we love our neighbor, our wives and our husbands are our closest and we don't commit adultery. How do we love our neighbor? We don't lie, particularly in court situations where we swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God when there's lives and property at stake. We tell the truth. We don't bear false witness. How do we love our neighbor? We don't covet their possessions our spouses. We're thankful for them and their prosperity. So you can see just as we connected all of the commandments in the first table, you can see the brilliance and wisdom of God connecting the second table as well. And that makes it, that's a a good tool for us in in an educational sense for us to easily learn these commandments and see their relationship one to another and to see how there are relative duties that flow out of each one but yet all connected to the head. In this case, well, the first, the fifth commandment. And let me say this because there are some that have advocated, well, These two tables are not connected at all. They are completely separate. Well, that's just not the case at all. And let me give you an argument against that. They are connected. If I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, I'm going to do it not out of selfish motivations first. I'm going to do it to the honor and glory of God first. That's That's the rule of all obedience. Love for God. Love for God. Love for God is that honor, that adoration, that respect, that longing for his glory and his glory alone, his worthiness, his, you know, the word worthy means weighty. 
He's worthy of these things. All of our obedience related to the second table of the law, related to our human relationships, must all flow first from our love for God and him alone first, alone first. The first table addresses our religion and the second table addresses our righteousness. Listen to this quote from Samuel Willard and notice the connection he makes. It's brilliant. It's, I think it's, it's, it just shows you how these men who were steeped in a proper understanding of scripture, how they saw the word of God and why it was so rich and broad and deep for them. That's why we read them and just stand back and we're amazed because most everything we read today is way shallower than what we read from past theologians. He said this, he said, it's not enough that we love God, but we must take measures by which we regulate this love from his mouth. And for this reason, this love is in scripture frequently called righteousness. Because when we do them, meaning our neighbors justice, well, we're loving them. If otherwise, we do not love them, but hate them. Hence, Leviticus 19, 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Notice the connection that Samuel Willer made to righteousness and justice and love. What he is saying is, if we are going to perform righteousness, it must be done in the category of love. We must love one another. We must love our brothers and sisters, then perform righteousness, because righteousness is the outflowing and the manifestation of a love from the heart. That's righteousness. That's Galatians 5. That the goal of the law is what? Love. Love to God and love to our neighbor. He says, this is what it means to do justice. Often when we read the word righteousness or justice, we look at it in a very legal sense, don't we? Yet we're looking at it from a moral perspective. And because it's a moral because it's moral, it, it, it is, it's showing us that this is the will of God and this is what we are to conform to. Look at James chapter 1. Now look at verse, well, I'm going to summarize a few verses and then we'll read verse 26 and 27. Now verse 23, if I'll notice, if anyone hears the word and he's not a doer of the word, he's like a man that looks in the mirror, he forgets what he sees and it's not a good thing. Verse 25, but one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. So it's the doer of the word that is truly blessed. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. 
to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is, this is encapsulate everything I've just said. That this righteousness that we owe to one another, especially, especially certain classes of people that are in great need, we are to pay particular attention to. And what does he say? Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father, visiting orphans and widows in their distress. Now, notice we could argue what here from the greater even to the lesser. If James can say that this is pure and undefiled religion before God as creator and before God as father, if, if this is an obligation, a responsibility, a duty that is moral and binding on all men, especially Christians, then how much more to defend the most helpless of lives? There is not a life more helpless and in need of defending and being protected than the child in the womb of a woman. Now, I could go even to the Old Testament, and it talks about those laws that deal with miscarrying, that is, causing a woman to miscarry. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. God doesn't, he frowns upon that, he, he judges that, he, he addresses that, and he deals with this. Well, how much more that willful act of abortion? And how much more those who know better allowing it to happen? And claiming while it happens, it's a woman's right. I hope you or at least I hope, I, I'll put the weight on me, I hope I'm demonstrating absurdities all over the place. But the second part that I wanted to also point out in this text, notice, as I said, concern for yourself. Look what James says, to keep oneself unstained by the world. We have a, the second table of the law, Samuel Willard says, and Jehadis Voss, John Calvin, many others says, the second table of the law addresses ourselves and others ourselves and others that is we ought to be concerned about our name our integrity we ought to walk in honor be an example all of those things that that the well the fifth commandment actually requires now let me do this um, similar to what I did I think a couple of weeks back, not as in-depth as what I'm about to do here, but I, but I want to go through a couple of uh, uh, terms, uh, definitions. I think it's important to get terms correct. It's important to understand what we talk about when we talk about responsibility. What do we mean when we say responsible? Well, I'm going to give you a, a definition from Noah Webster, 
And the reason I use Noah Webster is because so, there's so much scripture that he interweaves in his definitions and use of the American Dictionary, the very first American Dictionary. Um, you may not know that. But let's look at the word responsible. What does the word responsible mean? It means liable to account. Now, it's obviously carrying a sort of a financial um, uh, flavor. It has a financial flavor to it. It's liable to account, accountable, answerable, particularly as it relates to a debt, one that's responsible to pay back a debt. He goes on, he says, we are responsible for the talents entrusted to us by our creator. We have to give an account for those. And remember, we looked at the parable of the talents and many of you uh, thought that those was a challenging parable. And I, I heard several I heard several good comments related to that parable, but that's what it means to be responsible. When we say that we are responsible, we are liable before God morally, morally. We're indebted to God for the obedience of that law, for the obedience of that manner. What about the word duty? Again, a lot of these words just sort of take on a very sterile, uh, negative connotation. But listen to the definition. That which a person owes to another. That's pretty simple, isn't it? That which a person is bound or obligated to perform. That which is natural, moral, or even legal. So when we talk about duty, we're just talking about that which naturally flows from our relationship being made in the image of God, our brothers and sisters being made in the image of God, all of the inhabitants of this world and particularly our community made in the image of God. And there is a certain duty we owe to one another. It's moral and natural. It comes by virtue of being made created by God. That's why I made the comment earlier that evolution is a, a huge problem for the world, particularly even our country who has drank from this well for, well, a long time. And, and it shows, all right, it shows we have the, uh, we don't, we no longer have the sanctity of life. We no longer have the, um, I mean, the way people treat one another, the, the way people, uh, the way women and men interact anymore is embarrassing. It's, it, it's cringeworthy. The way even the dead are treated, much different in a Christian society, much different in a Christian society. There seems to be in this dead culture, no respect for life at all, rightly so. What about moral? What about the word moral? The word moral relates to practice, practice, manners or conduct of men as social creatures in relationship to one another with reference to right and wrong. The word moral is applicable to actions that are good or evil, virtuous 
are vicious and has reference to the law of God as the standard by which their character is to be determined. Now, that's a problem for those that would stand up and beat their chest and say, I'm accountable to nobody. I'm accountable to no man. I'm my own person. I hope none of us will say that. We are accountable to God, and we're accountable to one another. That's set forth in the fifth commandment, as we will see. The word, however, may be applied to actions which affect only or primarily or and principally the person's own happiness. That's what we're talking about, death. Death is the extinguishing of happiness. I mean, there's a, 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 an idea that if we rebel against God, we will be happy, we will be free. And thus, we will be blessed. But that doesn't happen because the person that rebels against God destroys himself as he's made in the image of God. And when they, when they rebel against God, they are acting against themselves. They are literally denying themselves. And that's why it's such a great sin. I'm going to say this. There's a couple of more paragraphs I could read there, but I, I want to say this, and I'm going to tie it back to the article. Noah Webster says this. He says, moral law, the law of God which prescribes the moral and social duties and prohibits the transgression, transgressing of them are to be argued from a moral perspective. Moral duties require a moral argument. Moral duties, what are we talking about here? A moral duty. Require a moral argument, not a biological one, not, not a scientific one. What have we been, what's been the argument over the last 50 years? It's all been about the science, but we knew better. We knew better. This is not a scientific problem. This is not a, a problem of biology. This is a moral problem that's killing people and killing this nation and the world. Well, brothers and sisters, as we look at the fifth commandment on its face, yes, it does call for children to honor thy father and mother and I, and, and I don't know about you but this is one of my favorite commandments for my children <laughs> this was the very first catechism question I taught all my kids now that's not true if a child owes honor and love and respect, that word, again, these are pregnant words. These are pregnant terms. They're full and rich with meaning and application. If a child owes that to the parent, the, the, the sanctity, if you will, of authority, how much more does the superior owe the weak, the small, the helpless, 
the uneducated, right? The little ones, even the preborn ones. Now, brothers and sisters, when does this moral obligation begin? At conception. <laughs> At conception. We said, well, pastor, now you're treading on thin. I mean, you are walking all over people's consciences and whatnot. Well, listen, I have no authority personally to walk on anyone's conscience. But God's word does. And listen to this closely. Until the church, and the church is, it, it, I think, this is, a, this is a, a true criticism of the Christian church. We've railed against homosexuality for a decade now, but very little against heterosexual immorality. We found great comfort railing against the, you know, the, the bad sinners, but we just overlook those social acceptable sins. If you are worried about that obligation, that moral obligation and responsibility that comes with a pregnancy and you're not married, don't do those things that cause a pregnancy. That's first. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from that which God has created and given to man, particularly the institution of marriage, to create life. And you'll never have to do it. You'll never have to make that decision. You say, well, pastor, I've heard this argument. You can't do that. It's just part of it. It's just the way it is. But it's a problem. And it has to be addressed. And who better to address it than superiors who know the word of God. Are we going to be salt and light, brothers and sisters, or not? Are we going to address the root of the issue or not? Because this argument seems to me needs to step back two or three steps, step back and then begin to address it, while obviously dealing with the crime, the murder, but also addressing it before it ever gets there. There are three things in this commandment that I'm just going to highlight for you in passing again as sort of a, a broad apologetic for you in your discussion with others about this topic, but also related to the representatives that I hope might one day soon listen to these sermons. The first one, the fifth commandment sets forth the duty of a superior for the welfare of welfare and well-being of its inferiors. Now, when I say welfare, I saw all of y'all cringe up. The welfare we're talking about here is not the welfare we practice in this nation. True welfare does not pay somebody to do nothing. It doesn't pay someone to have children outside of wedlock. True welfare doesn't pay people to destroy themselves, to become more and more useless. Now, that's a general statement. I know it. You can say, Pastor, you, you were generalizing. Of course I'm generalizing. 
Are there exceptions to the general rule? Uh, Yes. But I'm assuming we know this. Listen to Noah Webster's definition of welfare. Exemption from misfortune, sickness, calamity, or evil. The enjoyment of health and common blessings of life, prosperity, and happiness applied to people. Isn't that beautiful? What does the superior owe that immediate life even as it's growing in that woman's womb. Protection, nurture, love. She takes care of herself so that the baby doesn't become sick. She wants a healthy child. She keeps herself healthy. We see this all the time when, when, when women, usually when wives become pregnant, they begin to modify their diets. They begin to take certain regiments in order to do what? Make sure the baby has the best opportunity to, to be born healthy. Praise God. That's a keeping of the fifth commandment. That's a moral, that's a moral keeping of that commandment. And yet that's exactly what is required of, so that when that child is born, in the, that male or female, in the image of God, their growth, their education, all that is poured into them, first to be lovers of God, secondly to be lovers of father, mother, of all of those relatable and relative duties in society, as Willard says, become a useful person? You know, it's, the commentary is staggering to the, to the uh, antithesis, isn't it? You know, you know what an incorrigible person is? An incorrigible person is someone that will not learn, who will not be instructed in right things, who will not conform to social norms and standards that make the world, listen to me, a beautiful place. Manners, respect. That used to be practiced. And what we're learning, these are the antithesis. These are the, these are the, the, uh, figures of exactly the opposite of what is being taught here and what is being bestowed upon us as obligations and responsibilities. These are the things we ought to love. This is ugly. This is beautiful when we honor one another, when we show respect and deference to those who are higher in status or higher in skill sets and all the the veneration. It was reflected in art, architecture, literature the world listen the world is a much better more beautiful place when christianity rules than it is without it period there is this sense of welfare there is this sense of this well-being this the obligation of well-being to this unborn child The the catechism sums it up like this. It says, to love and to bless and pray for. To love and bless and pray for. 
That's the obligation that a parent has, a superior has to the little ones and to those under their care. But particularly as we're relating this to those children, to pray and love them, not destroy them. And again, I'll get to the second part here, to protect and provide for. Now, this is both spiritually and materially. Now, let me say this. Everything that is, everything that is, that is binding morally upon the father and mother as a superior is binding upon superiors in the church and the state. You know, the church, we have families. Churches are extended religious families made up of families. We call ourselves brothers and sisters. Pastors are called fathers in the scriptures. Paul called himself a father to Timothy. What are nations? Larger, extended, broader families of people having a relation, obligation, and duties to one another. That's why this whole diversity, this melting pot will never work. It will never work. It's destructive. It's destructive. This illegal immigration is not at all love. It's destructive. It's destroying the country. And I could go on, I could, I could spend a good sermon on that. But I'm, but it's related. We, superior is to protect and provide for that unborn, even that preborn child. Paul says to the Timothy, the young pastor, he says, if a person won't provide for their families, they are worse than an unbeliever. Now, that would be man, female. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a single mom or a single dad or, or it doesn't matter. It is that this is the obligation that, that when, when a person doesn't honor and respect the life that they carry as the image bearer of God and the duties and obligations they have to that preborn life, well, then they are consciously not only murdering that life, but they are also consciously acting against themselves. And there's a part of them that dies with it. Consciously. Morally. The feelings and emotions. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes two die in abortion. You know the heinousness of this, this bill that was just passed that stated that if this, this preborn child survived this abortion attempt, that there was an obligation that the abortionist had to protect it and to seek out medical attention for it. And of course, they, they, they voted it down. They voted it down. I want you to think about the horror of that. I want you to think about the immorality of that. I want you to think about the invitation of God's wrath upon that law and upon those who voted for it. I want you to consider everything that we've talked about, the heinousness 
of that act. It's beyond, uh, isn't it beyond even our human imagination? That we have to consider such a horrible thing? That we naturally, what do we naturally, beloved, want to do when someone's in need? Get them help. Get them help. Protect them. Minister to them. Serve them. What do we need to do to save their life here? Nope. Not going to do it. We owe that child nothing. That's where we are as a nation. And I'm not sure what role the church plays into that. But we don't play into that. And we're not going to play into that. That is a grievous, grievous act against Almighty God and His creation. And it will not go unpunished. Beloved, the fifth commandment sets forth the welfare and the well-being, the obligations, roles, and responsibilities relative to one another that we have to each other in various circumstances and in various situations. Their welfare to protect, to keep from danger. Even out of time, but I'm going to say this. At the heart of this neglecting this commandment is just raw selfishness, pure selfishness. I will live my life the way I want to live it, and I will not be inconvenienced with others. That means even if, it, if I need to help them, I'm not going to help them because I'm not going to be inconvenienced. They hate God. They love death. And that's exactly, listen to me, that's exactly what they will reap in the end if they don't repent of their sins and turn. And by God's grace and spirit, replace that stone-cold heart of death with a heart of love and joy and gladness to serve their fellow man. That's the only remedy. That's the only way they're going to escape eternal damnation. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, I'll repeat it again because it's worth worth repeating. As you did unto these little ones, you did unto me. Let's pray. Now, gracious Father, you've been very kind to us to allow us the opportunity for this series. Lord, I know that we're not all ignorant to these things, but yet for some of us it's a reminder. For some of us it's broadening what we thought we knew and helping us see its connections, uh, it, the connection from, from one commandment to another. Lord, we want to be able to testify with those that have gone before us that we love your law, that it's exceedingly broad, it's beautiful, it's life, it's liberty, James called it. 
And I pray that we would embrace these, uh, these, these, these obligations, these manners. I pray that we would embrace these duties. Lord, we can't escape them without serious effect against us. Without a serious, serious harm against ourselves. And so what a motivation. What a motivation. Lord, we have to love our neighbor as ourselves, to seek their good, to seek their honor, to seek particularly those that come from our own bodies. How much more, Lord, if we're obligated to, to, to the little ones outside the womb, how much more to the little ones in our, the womb? Completely helpless. Now, Father, glorify yourself in this, this series, Lord, and, and give your people comfort in your word. Give us comfort in the fact that we don't look to the world for accolades. We don't look, we don't look to the world for approval. It matters not. What matters is that we are in agreement with you. You have set forth the moral standards of this world, no one else. And so, Lord, we long and we desire to be pleasing in your sight. So come and bless us. Certainly prepare us now, Lord, to come and partake of this supper where we will fellowship with Christ in a very mystical and special way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.